All right, well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this series. Every year in the middle of the year, we do something a little bit different and break from our series. And, uh, and this year, we're looking at sex, gravity, and the glory of God. And, uh, and I know some of you hang for these series and others might be perishing, but it's happening regardless. So I think it's going to be great. And uh, I also wanted to thank just some of our creative team in kicking this off. So Marcus Tripodi from 11am did the artwork uh, on the board and, um, and for the design. But also we kicked off uh, kind of our weeks. It's going to be an acoustic month. And the Wit Churches this morning had like the Dobro and acoustic guitar. And the Savo when I came in, I saw Anna Maria and Cam up there. But I also heard drums. I was like, where is that coming? Is that, <laughs> is that you, Jesus? Like, are you here among us? But, uh, but no, they're just geniuses who teed up some kind of 808 thing. So can we just thank them for all the work that they've kind of put in? It really is, um, it really matters. They work hard that we might be able to respond to the word um, in praise. And so um, it's a great thing to be able to do together. Um, but we, uh, we kick off this series on sex, gravity, and the glory of God really for one purpose, that we, we want to see you grow in wisdom in relationships, that you would understand what the Bible says, and that you might know what God says about these things. You might be able to navigate relationships and sexuality in a way that's wise and not foolish. And this matters because we, we're a church, as Gav mentioned before, that are on about making more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And as you go stronger as a disciple of Jesus, it means bringing more and more of life under His Lordship. Our finances, sexuality, relationships, all those things come under His good Lordship. But it also matters for making more disciples and reaching people with the gospel because we live in a culture that is absolutely looking for wisdom on relationships. And I know this because I was listening to morning radio, which is quality radio, and I was listening to, I was listening to a girl who called up and was asking for advice from, and it's hard to get the words out of my mouth, from Kyle Sanderlands. <laughs> At which point, when you're getting relationship advice from Kyle Sanders, like, that's it, we're done, aren't we? We're finished as a people group. But it was, you know, I kind of, I joke, but like it was that the reason she was calling up was because she saw that her boyfriend had Googled, why is my girlfriend not more affectionate with me? And she was calling a radio station to get advice about that. So he's asking the internet, which is only one bit better than asking Kyle Sanderlands himself. And it's just, it's crazy. People are looking for some kind of wisdom, some kind of counsel. In a culture that's always like, look, you just do whatever's up to you. People are like, but what do I do? I want to know what is a good and a bad thing? What is a wise and a foolish thing? How do we navigate these things? Because they're precious and they matter. And so we want you guys to know what the Bible says about these things, that you might be wise. You might have understanding. You might, even as the psalmists say, that we might be wiser than our teachers because we know the Word of God and what He has to say about relationships. And so we're going to do this in a kind of a funny order. We're going marriage, dating, family, and singleness. Now, oftentimes in these series, you'll get singleness, dating, married, family. And the reason we're not doing that is because sometimes when you do that, it implies that that's the story for everybody's life and that that's the way that you have to go. And I don't want to be morbid about this, and we'll get to it in the fourth week, but it is the case that you need to think about singleness because even if you are married, it's likely that if your marriage makes it all the way to the end, that your life will finish with a long season of singleness, that one partner often passes away before the other. And you need to have thought about what the Bible says about stewarding your singleness. And so we're doing it in a different order. We're starting with marriage, then leading on to dating, then into family, and singleness on the last week. 
Uh, mostly because we know that not everyone's story goes singleness, dating, marriage, family, but also because the Bible says that the goal of your life is not to get married. And we're going to see that today as well. Marriage is a covenant and it matters, but it is not the goal and the end point of your life. And so we want to resource you over this time as well. And I'm going to mention a little bit later in this talk that there are some biblical counseling podcasts that we'd love for you to get amongst, either as individuals or as a group together. And we'll explain how it is that we'll be doing that while our, our missional communities are taking a break over this July month. Um, because really, when we do a series, we do it like once every two years. That is not, if you're just relying on these talks to get you through, that is not enough. And so we want to equip you to go away and to, to research deeply into what God has to say about these things. But also, we want you to listen to these talks as a set. They're meant to kind of fit all together. And so we'd love for you to be here week in and week out as we dive into this stuff. And if you absolutely are like just hospital bound and cannot get here to track on with the podcast, you might hear it as one set. And like Ev was saying, that you might not just hear and apply for yourself, but be able to love and serve your brothers and sisters if they're in a different phase in life, stewarding their sexuality in a different way. I'm going to pray for us as we start. God, we praise you that you are all wise and all knowing. That we know barely even what's in front of us, and yet you know and have designed all things and have purposed them for your glory. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit and your word to understand your ways, to know that your ways are higher than our ways, and that you are the one who gives us wisdom and understanding. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, let's start right at the beginning with God's design for human flourishing, for marriage and for sexuality. In Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, because the Bible knows where it's at and it's not mucking around, we get to sex on the very first page. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, He creates everything and the pinnacle of creation is humankind made in His image. And we get this statement about humankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man and woman equal in worth and dignity. He places them in charge of his good creation that he has lovingly created for their flourishing. And he says to them, I've got a project for you. Fill the earth and subdue it. Build towns, cities, all that kind of stuff. Fill the earth and subdue it. Complete this project to the glory of God. But in Genesis 1, it's kind of just skating over the details. And in Genesis 2, it's like a slow motion replay of this moment when he creates humankind. And it slows down to focus on the man and the woman. And in Genesis 2, 8 and beyond, we read this. Then the Lord said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And uh, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought it to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now we are moving through this quickly as we're looking at what the Bible has to say about marriage. So we don't have time to stop like we did in Genesis a couple of years back and deal with some of the objections that would come up in terms of evolution and those kind of things. I'd urge you, if that's right at the front of your mind, to track back to those talks. But for now, I'm going to move through it. But here, the point is that God creates humanity. And in order to fulfill this project, to, to fill the earth and subdue it, He gives neither man nor woman the ability to do it on their own. He says, together, you will complete this project. And here becomes the basis for, for community and for bringing people together. They are interdependent and they need one another. And so God in this first marriage, this, this archetype here, is saying that they are made equally in the image of God and need one another in order to complete this project going forward. And then we get these words. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The idea is that in marriage, it is a one flesh union. That is where all of life gets wrapped up together. It's not a minor thing. It's not just a glorified friendship. He's saying this is a covenant commitment. It's a lifelong covenant commitment where you're intimately connected with another person and all of life is interconnected. And in sex within this is a physical celebration of a spiritual reality, of this covenant, this promise that has been made till death do us part. So in the Bible, this is marriage. One man, one woman in a lifelong one flesh covenant. And you might be saying, well, that is exactly why I'm not into Christianity in the Bible. That is so far from where we are culturally, it barely even makes sense. And I would, I would agree with you on that. That actually it is so far from where we are culturally. But I think it's also the case that where we are culturally is a unique position. The story of marriage and sex in our culture is not the story of marriage and sex in every culture around the world. And the way we understand marriage and sex right now, I would say, is an abstraction from its original design built upon largely technology and cultural movements. If you think of it like this, abstraction is a process by which something kind of changes by degrees to the point where the final product barely looks like the beginning one. You can think of it like this. A friend of ours, Gavin Mine, who we've known since he was in youth group and we were youth leaders, he was a part of this church at the 11 a.m. service, now part of the Burwood plant and the campus over there. But his name is, is a Korean. His name is Dabin Kim. And so his nickname through high school was Chichi. And the first thing people would ask is, why, is he called, why are people going Chich or Chichi? Like that's got nothing to do with his name. And it happened this way. His name's Dabin Kim. Then he became Kimmy. Then they were reading a Bible passage where there was a king called Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's brother was Jehoiachin. So he became Chini, Chich, Chichi, Chichihoi. It just kept going, right? And so, like, by degrees, you can see how it got there, but the final thing looks nothing like the original, right? I would say it's exactly the same with the story of sex and marriage in our culture. That by degrees, our understanding of things has changed, and now we have something that is actually completely abstracted from the original design. And this is the five big movements in the story of sex in our culture. The first, which was absolutely revolutionary, and we were all born after it, so we can't imagine any other way, but it was absolutely revolutionary to see sex as non-procreative. 
Then the second step was to see it as non-marital. Then the third was to see marriage as non-permanent. Then the the fourth was to see it was a change in the workforce. And the fifth was the expansion of pornography. Without those five steps, we would not see sex and marriage in the way that we see it right now. Let me explain it this way. The first was to see sex as non-procreative. Now, where we stand at the moment, you think, well, of course. I mean, it's got nothing to do with that, right? But before contraception became widely available in the middle of the last century, and by the way, I'm not ragging on contraception or anything. That's a whole other thing. I'm just <laughs> explaining this is the sto- these are bare facts in the story, right? You don't have to be Christian or anything to agree on this narrative. Um, but uh, before, uh, before it became widely available um, in the you know, early to, to sort of mid-20th century, before that time, the idea that sex and procreation were inseparable was just plainly obvious. You could not sleep with someone without thinking that the consequence might be that a child would be born. So it's not that sex before marriage was invented somewhere in the middle of the century. People were doing it before that. But even if you did, you had to know that at some point a decision might have to get made. And it was serious. But once we could separate that through contraception from procreation, then it made way for the second step to see sex as entirely non-marital. You could have multiple partners. The sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s was built on contraception, the technology that provided the opportunity to have multiple partners without having to make serious decisions about where the kids would go. Once we saw it as non-marital, the next step in the 1970s was to see marriage as non-permanent. Through no-fault divorce prior to that, if you wanted to end a marriage, someone had to admit fault. After that, it was much easier to dissolve a marriage, and so it became more plausible to see marriage as kind of an impermanent or transitory thing. But the fourth one which might surprise you was the change in the workforce. As technology improved and some manual labor jobs were now being automated, it changed the workforce in a profound way in that really since the beginning of time, the majority of the workforce was physical labor, which meant that the majority of the workforce was men. In Hannah Rosen's article, The End of Men, that she put out in The Atlantic in maybe 2015, she indicated that of the 15 fastest growing industries, 13 of them were dominated by women. And the reason for it is, as we shift away from physical labor, to knowledge work, where it's an even playing field, that actually women have stepped into the, into the workforce in a profound way. And that was a shift because sometimes the motivation to marry was around financial security, and that no longer was a factor. And that was the fourth step. But then the fifth was this, the proliferation of pornography. The proliferation of pornography, pornography means for the first time in the history of humankind, the largest driver of sexual desire is an image not an actual person. The impact of pornography has been to saturate our cultures to the point where things that were previously considered shocking and explicit are now just par for the course. In fact, they're the kind of things that you would include in a pilot just to get it through. Perhaps the most profound example of how mainstream porn has become is the, is the apparent suicide of Playboy. The Playboy magazine was instrumental in proliferating pornography. But essentially, the industry they created outsped them to the point where they could not keep up with the demand for graphic and gratuitous and enormous sort of reams of content to the point where two years ago, they actually became a non-nude magazine because they could not compete in the industry that they created. It got that far ahead. Porn exposure and addiction rates skyrocketed and it has transformed the way that men and women interact. Naomi Klein made the point that men now 
have seen so much pornography that some are struggling to be aroused by a real woman. She says in this way, real women sometimes are just bad porn. It is really changing the way that we relate to the point where Sexpo's image for the first time last year was not a person but a robot. Sex has become so abstracted from another person that now the, the, the pleasure itself has become the end. Cartoon sex pornography is on the rise. Uh, sex robots, all these are abstractions of sex and sexuality. And all of this led to a major piece that The Atlantic did last year called The Sex Recession, where they indicated that as a culture, though we've been so sex-obsessed for so many years, we've actually now got to the point where people are having sex with other people less. It's on decline. And why? Well, she says there are many factors for it, but one of the main factors, she says, is the appeal of what she calls sex for one. She writes, The internet has made it so easy to gratify basic social and sexual needs that there's far less incentive to go out into the meat world, and that's her words, not mine, the meat world, and chase those things. This isn't to say that the internet can give you more satisfaction than sex or relationships, because it doesn't. Uh, but it supplies you with just enough satisfaction to placate those imperatives. I think it's healthy to ask yourself, if I didn't have any of this, would I be going out more? Would I be having sex more? For a lot of people my age, I think the answer is probably yes. How crazy is this? Our culture is so, has got so obsessed with sex itself that we actually killed it. We became so obsessed with sex that it's now been abstracted from another person. I mean, this is crazy. We are a mess. And what does this mean? Well, how we understand sex in marriage now is almost completely abstracted from its original orbit. In his article, Alastair Roberts makes the case that we are now operating at what he calls zero gravity, that there is now no cultural gravity left holding a man and woman together, that it's very hard to make a relationship stick because there is so little pulling a man and woman together. He summarizes it in this way, talking about a book called Cheap Sex that was put out last year, a secular piece. He says, women want men but don't need them, while men want sex but have more options now. Many women today complain that while their careers are advancing to an unprecedented degree, they're increasingly dissatisfied with the quality of their personal relationships. Men don't seem prepared to commit, and men set the terms of the sexual relationship. The results are not good. He says we are now at zero gravity. Where once there was a sense that a marriage was a thing that needed to stay together, that sexual union was something preserved for this covenant promise relationship, there is now none of that. And relationships fall apart easily. The thing about zero gravity is that it takes very little to move an object of incredible mass when it's floating in zero gravity. The effort that a child could exert could push a spaceship. And it is the case that our relationships offering, up, operating at so little gravity are easily pushed apart even by the most minor of conflicts. And in the midst of this, I think sadly... Most Christian married couples are coasting. And I want to put to you that if you think that your marriage will just work out without deliberate biblical effort in our current zero-gravity climate, I really think you are underestimating what's happening. And so the question we're asking is, what difference does Jesus make? What gravity does Jesus bring to relationships? When the passage uh, that uh, Andy read out before, we see what it is. In Colossians 1, 6, uh, 15 to 20, 
we read this about Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It'll come up on the screen for you. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything was made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything that you can see. And see how comprehensive the statement was. It's like whether visible or invisible, rulers, dominions, powers, authorities, everything belongs to Jesus. There is nothing in creation, visible, invisible, physical, non-physical, over which Jesus cannot say, mine. It all belongs to him. And it is all for his glory. And you might say, well, isn't that arrogant? That God would make everything to sort of show how great he is, to be the center of everything, that Jesus would demand to be the very center of your life and relationships. But I would say it's only as arrogant as the sun being the center of our solar system. The sun is the center of our solar system not because it outbid the other planets, but because it's simply the biggest mass. And it's the only thing around which everything else can orbit. And in the same way, when Jesus is the center of gravity for all life, it all holds together. Colossians 1 says, In him all things hold together, including marriage. And so then the question becomes, all right, well, what does Jesus say then about marriage that gives it so much gravity? Well, let's have a look at the passage that we read before in Matthew 19, when people ask Jesus, God in the flesh, about his opinions on marriage. In Matthew 19, sentence 1, we read this. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Presumably their wives are not in on this discussion. But anyway, we carry on. In sentence 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So the first thing Jesus does when asked about marriage it says, confirms what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. It says, the God who made the male and female has made it a one flesh union. This is why it says, leave mother and father and become one flesh. The two will be one. And they said to him, well, then why, does it, why is there this you know, rule in the Bible about you can get divorced? And he says, well, it's not as a concession because we are hard of heart and sinful. That it can be the, the, the case that a marriage is defiled and degraded in such a way that God has a mercy would have them divorced, but it is, he says it was not so from the beginning. This is not the design and intent. He's saying this is a covenant that is meant to hold two together, and that sex is meant to be a celebration of that. It's meant to bind two people together profoundly. Now, doesn't that speak to our experience? Isn't that the case that when a couple get together and they've been sleeping together, that so often it's hard for them to break up and they keep getting back together and breaking up, even though the relationship is a disaster and it's over, because they feel profoundly connected to one another, because sex is meant to connect. It's meant to be a celebration of an unbreakable one flesh union, until death do us part kind of union. 
But our culture keeps telling us that it's largely a physical appetite. And we know this because of the words we use around it. In our culture, what is the euphemism for sex? We say sleeping together. That's the idea of two bodies next to one another. Do you know what the Bible's euphemism for sex is? It says Adam knew his wife. That's when the Bible's being coy about sex. One is two bodies being next to each other. The other is about a deep intimacy and connection. Those are very different ways of understanding sex. Even the words we use for sexual desire are often around physical appetite, indicating that it's just another one of our physical appetites, hunger, thirst, and sex, and so on. But I would say that when we do this and reduce sex to a merely physical act, we take it out of the context that actually gives it meaning. And like a word, when you say it over and over and over, 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 over until it loses meaning, so sex, when it's drawn out of the context of this covenant commitment, loses its meaning. And then we get things like the sex recession where we've become so obsessed over it that it's actually lost its meaning and connection. See, Jesus is saying sex is not about personal gratification. We're addicted to sex and pleasure and actually losing in the process our ability to even relate to another human being as a human being. But here he says it's the proper context for sex. When I say I'm ready to commit my life to another person for the potential of building a family with them till death do us part, and I'm ready to celebrate that through a sexual union. And if you find that too much... Well, his disciples did too. Look at what they say in, in sentence 10. In Matthew 19.10, I read this. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are those who are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are those who are eunuchs who have be, who've been made eunuchs by men. There are those who are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. They say to him, if this is your vision of marriage, this lifelong death-bound covenant, like, honestly, who's going to get married? They're, you know, red-blooded, working-class guys. They're all fishermen. They're like, who is really going to do that? And Jesus then responds by talking about all this stuff about eunuchs. And I imagine his disciples at that point, we don't get any response from them here. None of them wanted to be the dummy who said that they didn't get it. So they all just went, no, that makes perfect sense. Yep, it's fine. Yep. But the question is, what is Jesus saying here about this, all this stuff with eunuchs? A eunuch was a person whose genitalia had been removed, and it was usually because they were a slave in a court or a certain office somewhere near someone important, and they didn't want them to be messing with their spouses, and so had done this to them. But he says there are others who are eunuchs from birth, most likely referencing people who are intersex. He says, there are some who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? He's saying there'll be some who don't engage in a sexual relationship for the sake of the kingdom. Either to tell people the gospel in a really dangerous context where they couldn't raise a family, or simply because a partner hasn't been provided for them, and they're going to stay celibate to pursue the kingdom of God and his things and do life his way. But what he's saying here is that while marriage is a profound covenant, it is not the end goal of your life, and he lived that himself. Jesus never married. Now, I don't know if you've thought about the significance of that, that at the center of Christianity, God become flesh was a single man. And he says here, there'll be some who'll be single for the sake of the kingdom. 
He's saying marriage is a profound covenant. So if you're going to enter into it, don't enter into it lightly. But also, it's not the goal of your life. The goal of your life is that Jesus would be at the center of it, that you would be about his kingdom. And whether you're single or married, this is the case. So if you're a Christian, your life purpose is to love God and to build his kingdom, to love the people around you and share with them the good news of Jesus. That really is your calling, and it doesn't change if you're married. It means that if you're not married, you're not missing out on your life's calling. But it also means that if you do get married, your life's calling doesn't change. And one guy in explaining this talked about a friend of his, who I think his name was Dave or something like that, but they, they, called, him, they called him Frodo. Not because they were nerds, but because they, because they said that once he put the ring on, he completely disappeared. And it was a, um, it's, it's one of those jokes that's like 10% joke but 90% like insight, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and for them, it is, it is the case, isn't it, that for some, it's like once that happens, it's like life's been building up to that moment, and once you get married, you're like, well, that's it. I guess I've done it all. I've finished all the things, and now I just wait for Jesus to come back and completely disappear. And what's crazy is I've even seen that some who, while they're single, resent the kind of couples who become super coupley and just disappear into a black hole of coupliness. It's all space illustrations today, isn't it? But disappear into that black hole of coupliness and then get married and go on to do the exact same thing. There's an idolatry in that. That once I'm married, I've finished, I've run the race, I've fought the good fight. And Jesus is saying, no, you're meant to be about the kingdom. And some will be single for the kingdom and some will be married, but all will be about the kingdom of Jesus. And this is a blessing because if you see marriage as your life goal, you are setting yourself up for massive trouble. You are setting yourself up to crush your spouse. You will become the kind of hyper-vigilant spouse who is always gauging what your partner is doing to see if they're meeting your needs or, doing the, the kind of, or being a part of the marriage that you thought would complete your life, and it will crush them. Not only that, you won't be able to see conflicts in your marriage as just conflicts. What's at stake is not just our marriage and, and how much it glorifies God, but what's at stake is the very meaning of my life. And so you can't handle it like it's just a normal conflict. It's like my very livelihood is at stake here. And it'll be a mess. Psychologists talk about the idea of enmeshment. The idea that when, when a couple are overly connected... That it's like they, they lose their individual identity. And they, it, the other person, if they're a little bit upset or whatever, it completely just sets them off kilter. And it's an unhealthy way to relate. The other unhealthy way, of course, is just to be very civil and you're basically just roommates. That's an unhealthy marriage too. But a healthy one is what Jesus talks about. I'm going to throw this out there to see if this kind of sticks as a way of remembering it. That the way we're to see it biblically is that you ought to be... You ought to be one fleshed, not enmeshed. Yeah, what do you think about that? All right. That is, in a permanent, lifelong covenant with the other person, but still very much a follower of Jesus who puts him and his kingdom first. That this other person is not your hope and meaning and salvation. That Jesus, the one who made all things, is and is in his right place. This is the gravity that Jesus brings to relationships, to, to marriage and the meaning to sex. But there is one other thing, that redemption is possible. Look what it says in Colossians 1, 16 to 20. As it comes up on the screen, just pay attention now to the last section here. In 19 we read, 
For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus holds all things together because it was made through him, by him, and for him. It's all his. But you see what else it said there? That he is also going to reconcile all things to himself. When you reconcile, you bring two warring parties together in peace. The two warring parties was humankind and God. In sin, we declared war on God. We said, this is mine. I'm free to define my life, my sexuality, marriage, whatever it is, it's mine and I decide how it is. And when we do, we face judgment and death. But Jesus comes down, dies the death that we deserve, and as his blood is spilled on our behalf, he reconciles us back to God. God is at his best, not merely in creation, but when he reconciles and brings back together. And this is the gravity that Jesus brings to to a marriage, is that instead of operating at zero gravity, where even the smallest amount of trouble can nudge a couple apart, that actually Jesus can even bring us together and reconcile. If he can reconcile God and humankind, he can reconcile two sinners to one another. It is the case that Jesus can make a marriage and give it gravity by making it anti-fragile. Now, I don't know if you like read management books in your spare time. I'm sure a lot of you do. It sounds like fun. Uh, But there was a book uh, that came out a little while ago about uh, organizations more so than people called Anti-Fragile. And the theory in this book was that there are three types of organization. There are fragile, that is, when they have conflict, they just fall apart. The first kind of speed bump they hit, it all comes unstuck. That's a fragile organization. Second one is robust. That is, they don't really, they're not very, they just tough it out. When there's conflict, you just, you know, hand to the plow, get it done, whatever. Unpleasant place to work, but they just keep going forward. They're robust. But then he said there are organizations that are anti-fragile. That is, when they deal with conflict, they learn from it and get better and get stronger as an organization. Jesus makes a marriage anti-fragile. When you see that he didn't withhold forgiveness from us, though he had every right to, how can you but withhold forgiveness from another person, another sinner? It means that instead of conflict kind of being in the way of marriage, it is what God is doing in your marriage. And in fact, this is the truth that I think many relationships in our culture are missing, is that actually the conflicts, after you've resolved them and brought them before Jesus, will actually bring an intimacy and a joy that you could not have got to without that conflict in the first place. And the sad thing is that many times, because we're at zero gravity, when the first kind of significant stress or conflict comes, people are like, I guess this just wasn't for us. The marriages come unstuck. So here's the question. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, is Jesus at the center of your marriage? And really this comes down to your personal walk with God. I mean, think how difficult it is to bring planets into orbit. It looks like the sun kind of does it reasonably easily, doesn't it? I mean, it looks like it's, I mean, basically it's effortless. But imagine what effort it would take to try and make these planets spin on that axis and orbit in that way using other means. Space rockets or something. I don't know. I'm not an aeronautical engineer, right? You can imagine the the immensity of effort it would take to do that. Well, think how hard it will be 
trying to get your marriage, your sexuality, your hobbies, your work, kids, family life, all those decisions together without Jesus at the center. They will simply fall apart in zero gravity chaos. Jesus must be at the center. And if Jesus is at the center of your marriage, the word of God must be at the center of your marriage. Mel and I don't have any conflicts, but we've heard that people in their relationships (laughs) do, and so we want to be good pastors. So I try to get my head around what that would be like in marriage. But oftentimes, if we feel frictiony, or we hear that people are, or whatever, the first question we ask, and it's become a reflex in our marriages, how much time are we spending just hearing from God and His Word and praying to Him? And as we look at our just daily habits of being in the Word, there's almost a one-to-one correspondence that when we are not in the Word, we just are out of orbit with each other. We're just weird frictions and annoyances and all those kind of things that when we are meeting with God regularly, just disappear. It is right that when Jesus is at the center of things, marriage and all those other things are meant to work better. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, it exempts us from all troubles or whatever, but it's those garden variety, just everyday kind of little frictions that seem to disappear. Is Jesus at the center of your marriage? How are you going in your habits of grace? In meeting with Him regularly, meeting with the people of God regularly, stewarding your finances, getting regular rest. But the second one is, if your main concern as a couple is how it is that you're going to live a happy, upwardly mobile, middle-class life, and it's hard because you may not know that that's what you really are living towards. It's hard to know really until, until it's taken away from you. It's hard to know how much you really wanted that. But if that is your main concern, you can expect to experience the boredom that comes with marriages that are linked to a story that small. Our story is that we exist to grow this immense kingdom of God that He has started and will bring to completion. We are called to be a part of that grand project. And that is enough, to bring a, that is enough gravity and story to bring a marriage together. If it's just about you and I, we won't make it. But we ought to be about the kingdom. Have you thought and prayed seriously about how you could steward what you have been uniquely given for the glory of God and for the building of His kingdom? But even with that, it's not the case that if you just do that, that you're exempt from tending to your marriage. You do have to tend to your marriage. It is a covenant and a one flesh union. And you're called to steward that wisely. And here are three things, really briefly, that I think will help you immensely. The first one is that you need to get face-to-face because almost everything in modern inner-city life or anything in Sydney is going to set you, by default, shoulder-to-shoulder. Even just quite literally. Shoulder-to-shoulder as you look at your phones, shoulder-to-shoulder as you watch hours of TV... And the truth is that a marriage is not meant to be shoulder-to-shoulder, it's meant to be face-to-face. That you actually need to face one another. Before Stranger Things came out this week, Mel Mel and I, that is like our one thing. We're just like, all bets are off. We can just... And it came out on Thursday, we've seen it all, just to be clear. But um, we tried to set the pattern at the beginning of the year that we would watch no TV during the week. And I remember one of the first few times that we did it, just sitting down with a cup of tea, which I don't enjoy... <laughs> for the record, they're sitting down and just having time to talk. We noticed that the night took a long time to get going. When you watch a show, the night's over like that. You're like, oh my gosh, what time is it already? But as you're sitting there, you realize you got you a lot of time. And then we realized actually, your, your marriage could deteriorate in incredible ways without you knowing it if you were spending just hours and hours shoulder to shoulder. Because you'll never get face to face and be like, we don't even have anything to talk about anymore. 
You need to get face to face. Your phones need to get out of your room. You get one of those, old, the, those alarm clocks. You can get them from Kmart for like nine cents or however. I don't know how they charge, what they charge. But you can get an alarm clock from there and get your phones out of your room. You should not be at night facing opposite sides of the room looking at your phones. Technology is pulling. The natural gravity is to pull couples apart. You need time to sit there and to talk, to work things out, to pray, to read the Word, to encourage one another. And even just as a way of knowing how is it that we're actually going as a couple. Are we growing together in our love for Jesus? That's the first one, to be face-to-face. The second is to keep short accounts. In marriage, it is very... It is the case that sometimes you'll be shocked by how easily you can blow up at something so, in, so insignificant. And usually the reason that we blow up at something that's insignificant is because we've accumulated this huge debt of bitterness and it's like one small incident has popped the balloon and it all comes gushing out. And it's kind of like this. If you lent someone $1,000 and they didn't pay you back and then you're at the coffee shop and they ask you to buy a $3.50 coffee, you might well lose it. Because you'd be like, you know what, you already owe me a grand. Like, I am not getting you a coffee. Now, it seems like a small thing, three bucks fifty, but when it's $1,003.50, that's a bigger deal. Oftentimes in marriage, you can accumulate all these little debts of bitterness, keeping little records of wrongs and never dealing with them to the point where just a small incident happens, like it all comes gushing out. And so it's a principle to keep a short account. In Ephesians, we're warned, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Maybe make it a 24-hour expiry date on any grievance or bitterness to deal with it before the sun goes down so that you don't accumulate week after week, month after month, year after year. And thirdly, kill what will kill your marriage. Kill what will kill your marriage. It is the case that pornography, that adulterous fantasy will kill your marriage. And so we'd urge you to have the same kind of warring mentality to those kind of things that would destroy your marriage. And if that's something that you either want to invest in yourself and wrestle with better biblically yourself, or you just want to be a good ally to someone else who is struggling with that, we would love to help you with that. And there are three things that you can do. The first is if you're a married couple, we're going to run a thing called Gospel-Centered Marriage, which is a biblical counseling resource And the way to sign up for it is just on the Connect cards later in this meeting. And we'll set it up so that you do it in your own house with your spouse, but everyone's going to sign into the same group and start a watch party, which I don't know why that sounds so dumb, but anyway, that's what it's called. It's a watch party. You all watch the same thing at the same time. So there's some accountability to actually getting it done. Um, And to go through these things that you might build a gospel-centered marriage. That's one. The second one is, and we'll post the link up tonight, that there is a, a resource, a set of podcasts about dealing with pornography called false love. And if you either want to grow in that struggle yourself or you want to help someone who is, you can either listen to that individually or if you'd like to, and this is the most helpful way to get together with a group of people, to do that. The other podcast is one called Gaining a Healthy Relationship with Food. And again, if that's something you want to listen to, you can check out the resources by yourself. But if you want to meet with a group together over this time while missional communities are on break, We would love to hear from you and to help you. Now, all of these things won't start this week, so you've got time to check it all out, to think and to pray about these things, and they'll start the following week after next Sunday, which is the dating talk. But any which way you cut it, this series will not be enough 
for you to steward your singleness, your marriage, your family, your sexuality, whatever it is well. We want to equip you to dive deep in the scriptures for yourself, not just for one year, but for many years to come, Lord willing, until Jesus comes home. Let's pray that God would equip us for that work. Father God, we praise you. You are an everlasting and ever-loving God. You give us your word and your counsel that, that it might make us wise in stewarding our relationships. Father, strengthen us to love people and hate our own sin. So often we are drawn instead to draw our mind to grievances with other people and to nurture and nourish our sin. Father, we pray that we'd look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who died on our behalf, who bought our forgiveness with his very own blood, that we would trust him, that his ways are good and right. His word, your word on marriage, is the final word. And that we would trust you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We would love you and we'd love our neighbor as ourselves, and all that you might be glorified in it. Father, we pray these things for the glory of your name. Amen.